Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. This is Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha. Those of you with very keen ears will already have noticed something a bit different about today's show. I'm not recording this in The Economist's cosy podcast studio. Instead, I'm outside the auditorium at the Royal Institution in London, one of the world's oldest and most important venues for scientific education and research. For centuries, prominent scientists have come here to give talks about their work to members of the general public, on everything from biodiversity to cosmology. Last night, for example, there was a talk about the very latest ideas in cosmic inflation. The Royal Institution is also the home of the annual Christmas Lectures, a tradition that dates back to the mid-19th century. They were started by the English physicist Michael Faraday. And lecturers since then have included Carl Sagan, David Attenborough, Richard Dawkins, Sophie Scott, and a host of others, including several Nobel laureates. Those lectures also cemented the RI's reputation for demonstrations. Now, demos are a critical piece of the puzzle when you're trying to educate anyone about science. Demos can make abstract concepts come alive. Today on Babbage, we're taking a break from our usual hard-hitting analysis of the latest scientific research. We're going to revisit some of the basic science that you might have learnt at school and probably still wish you remembered. Since I'm going back to school, I'll need a teacher. I'll be joined by my personal physics consigliere, Alom Shaha. Alom's just written a book called Why Don't Things Fall Up? And it's all about the science you wish you remembered from school. So he's the perfect person to take me through the most useful parts of the world of physics, from particle theory to electromagnetic waves, and also the surprisingly informative exercise of creating a miniature rocket in your kitchen. Okay, shall I turn this upside down? Yeah, turn it upside down and just take a step back. That the roof. We're at the Royal Institution, not just because it's the only place where we could get the equipment we needed for these science demos, but also because understanding and educating people in science has been the RI's bread and butter for centuries. The man who runs the demos here is Dan Plain. Me and my team look after the practical demonstrations that happen during talks, discourses, events here at the Royal Institution. And so what's the significance of the, the place we're in? So this building, the Royal Institution, was set up in 1799 by a group of people who were very keen to get the public excited about science. So back then there were lots of incredible scientists and they would meet with each other and they would talk with each other. And what our founders felt was that actually everybody would benefit from this. Society would benefit if everybody had a better grasp of what was happening in the scientific world. And that sort of spirit of education and public access and communication science 
it's sort of still here to this day, isn't it, many centuries later at the Royal Institution? Oh, absolutely, completely. We are approaching the 200th year of series like our Christmas lectures, the discourses, and we have talks here every week that engage the public in every realm of science that we can find somebody to talk about. It. Now, I've been to this place lots and lots of times over the years and always loved the lectures and all of that. And the key thing I take away from every single one is that there's always some sort of demonstration, something exploding, something <laughs> moving, sometimes things going wrong, although that's part of the charm. Why are demonstrations, demos, so important to what you do here? Well, lots of people learn in lots of different ways. And some people can, you know, read it in a book and understand it. Some people can hear somebody talk about it. But a very significant number of people are quite practically learning. You know, they might say even kinesthetic. They need to see and experience the thing happening in front of them. I'm certainly one of those people. And it's not really about convincing people, but it is more convincing to see a thing than to be told that it's happening. Especially if it's shocking or loud. Absolutely. You remember it, don't you? And if an we, emotional if we, connection. Exactly that, the emotional connection. If we can make people laugh or surprise them or give them something that they will walk away with a feeling about it, tying that up with remembering something. It makes things more memorable if you have an emotional connection. Now, you mentioned the Christmas lectures, and many people who are listening to this might well have seen the Christmas lectures. They happen at Christmas every single year. Tell me when they started, what they're about. Yeah, so they were started in 1825, where Michael Faraday, who lots of people will know, he's changed the world with all sorts of very important inventions. Michael Faraday decided and felt that it was really important to get people excited about science at an early age. So he started a series of lectures that continue to be known as the Christmas lectures. They were a series of lectures for young audiences where we would have a real expert in the field. So it used to be people in-house at the RI or we would get an external you know, professor from a university who's the absolute expert in a particular field. And the Royal Institution works with that person to make an engaging series of lectures for that young audience. And so they're very, very demo heavy, lots of explosions, lots of fire and lots of silliness and they're fun as well. And we have so many people who visit us now who are eminent scientists who will say to us, well, of course, I watched the Christmas lectures as a child. And for a lot of people, certainly a generation of scientists now, a lot of them, that was the kicking off point for them. The, the demos that have been going on here for many centuries, some of them are still going on. We still see them in, in the events that you run and everything. I just wonder, is there still a value in these historic demos where the science itself hasn't necessarily moved on, but we're still doing them to sort of show people what's going on? I think there are two answers to that. One is that everybody's going to learn something for the first time at some point. And so even if it's a classic demonstration that everybody knows and we have been doing it for hundreds of years, for someone in that audience, it'll be the first time they've seen it. And so that has value, always has value. And, and in my opinion, every audience, there will be somebody who hasn't seen that thing before. But also, we are a heritage institution. We celebrate our history. And so we like getting out the demonstrations that were done hundreds of years ago and showing them off in that context and saying this is how they explained things 100 years ago. A really fun one where the science is wrong but we like showing it and we like telling the story is Humphrey Davy who worked here first isolated potassium metal and potassium is very reactive with water. It's a bit of a classic. Uh, Expl explodes it on the desk. Yeah. And there was a bit of an idea that at the time that perhaps this is how volcanoes worked and so Davy had a demonstration where he had a model volcano he had some water in it and he dropped some potassium in and sparks and smoke and fire came out. It looked like a volcano. It's completely wrong. That's not how volcanoes work. But we like doing that. We like telling that story, especially as we have a picture of that demonstration. And it was drawn by Michael Faraday when he was visiting as a guest and watched this lecture and did a drawing of it. 
So give me some of the firsts that people were announcing here at this very spot to the world. So Faraday had his electric motor, the electron was talked about here before it was even called the electron, and uh, the first public demonstration of the recording and playback of sound ever happened in this room. So the first podcast, basically. Yeah, let's, let's, yeah, yeah, yeah so this, we're in a good tradition here. Absolutely. Okay, thanks, Dan. We'll hear more from you in just a bit. Now seems like a good time, though, to bring in our real-life physics teacher, Alom Shaha. Hi, Alom. Hi, Alok. Okay, Alom, we're here to go back to basics to learn some basic science that might be useful in everyday life, or at least help you see the world in a slightly different way. Now, why should non-scientists care about some of the science that we're going to talk about today? I think that's a bit like asking why should non-musicians care about music or non-artists care about art. An awful lot of the time people justify science education in terms of what career you might be able to do or its kind of utility but for me I I think it's really important for people to understand that science is a cultural activity and I think it comes from the same place that art and music and literature come from. I think we're all trying to make sense of the world and when we do make sense of it we want to share our understanding of it with other people And, and science is just a particular way of doing that And I think if you're not exposed to it, if you're not ever given the opportunity to engage with science, then how do you know that you don't love it? How do you know that it's not something that would become really special to you? And I I always give the example of, you know, I love the music of Prince, and if I'd never been exposed to it properly, I would never know that. And the same is true of science. If you're not exposed to it in an appropriate manner, I think you're kind of deprived of cultural heritage that we are all entitled to. And I absolutely believe that. I don't think it's about creating future scientists or ensuring that we have lots of STEM graduates or whatever. I think everybody is entitled to a really good science education in the same way that everybody is entitled to be exposed to music and art and literature. Okay, but Given that, you know, we've got a limited uh, time and attention and brain capacity, you know, here's a sort of perhaps a a question that might seem a sort of counterintuitive, I guess, but physics is obviously important for building things and understanding the universe and all those things if you're a physicist. But why is it useful in everyday life? Why do I need to know this stuff? I've got loads of other things to think about. I've got loads of other worries to concern myself with every day. Why do I need to know about wave theory or electromagnetism? I don't don't think you need to know about any of that, but in the same way that you don't need to listen to music or, or need to look at art. But what I would say is that physics is a remarkable human accomplishment. It's amazing that humans have been able to look at the natural world and make sense of it in this particular way. And what's unusual and unique about physics, and in fact the whole of science, is that we've managed to produce models of nature which provide explanations of why things happen and allow us to predict what's going to happen next. And in that sense, the way we make sense of the world through physics, biology and chemistry science is unique. It's a unique accomplishment. And ultimately, I think a lot of people might be asked why they became scientists. And I think the ultimate answer is is that there is a deep intellectual satisfaction in grasping scientific ideas and being able to apply them to the world around us. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question that I know will annoy you. Yes. Which is, there's this sort of cute thing that people say, which is, oh, children, they're born scientists. Is that true? Are they born scientists? Because they're always asking why, and they're wondering and experimenting with things and breaking things. It does annoy me. I I think it's the kind of aphorism that people like to throw around. why, why, Why does it annoy you? Because children aren't born scientists any more than they're born musicians or ballet dancers. But they're asking questions. Isn't that what scientists do? Humans have a natural instinct to ask questions. However, science is a very particular approach to answering questions. And you can't really do science without being taught how to do it. Because if you could, we'd have had science throughout history. And somewhat surprisingly to a lot of people, science is a methodology for arriving at knowledge that is relatively new. It's only arguably only a few hundred years old. There are approaches to answering questions that are 
distinctly scientific, if you like, that you need to be made of, aware of, you need to practice and so forth. So science, you know, I'm not going to throw around the cliche of the scientific method because there is no one single scientific method. However, it is a particular approach to answering questions about the world that one needs to be taught. I suppose also the issue of sort of acutely describing kids as born scientists is that it makes people think that you have to be born a scientist, as in it's not something you can learn. In fact, science is something you have to learn. It's not something that is innate in anybody, to be honest. And so people shouldn't be afraid of the fact that it can be hard at first, but they will get there if they just practice. Yeah, absolutely. You know, my, my job would be a lot easier if children were born scientists. Yeah, why would you have science lessons? That's exactly. Right. Well, actually, talking of school, uh, you're a science teacher at a secondary school, and a lot of people who are taught science at secondary school don't enjoy it and then will never think about it again for the rest of their lives. And I suppose that's what this particular episode is all about, is to try and get people to think about those lessons they've forgotten and, and your book is about as well. So why do you think people are turned off science at school? I think science, like any school subject, is difficult because you're exposed to new ideas, you have to take those ideas in and learn how to apply them to new situations and so forth. And you do that in history and geography and and other subjects. Science has a particularly bad reputation in terms of being difficult. And I think that's partly because of poor teaching. And I think that's true of all subjects. I think if you survey scientists, the overwhelming answer to why people become scientists is because they had a good teacher. Is it true for you? It's absolutely true for me. You know, I, I didn't take much interest in science until I was uh, 14 or 15 doing my GCSEs and that's when I had my best science teachers, uh, the first science teachers, to make me think that science was actually worth paying any attention to. So I think the quality of teaching is really important. Same with me. It was because of my physics teachers at school that the reason I did physics and became interested in any of this stuff because they didn't just teach me things but they taught me principles. Here's how to solve a problem, not what the answer of the problem actually was, which is much harder but it gets you further, right? Now but let's talk about the demos. What is the purpose of a good demo. Okay, so looking very closely at the world, I think is the first step towards science. And often young people have lots going on in their heads. They're interested in lots of things simultaneously. And they're often not paying attention to the world in the way that a science teacher would want. So the use of demonstrations in the classroom is a way to make children pay attention to the physical world. And it's such a valuable tool as a science teacher because you're talking about and showing students the very phenomena that we are considering in our science lessons. Okay, so what makes a good science demo? And and crucially, why is a demo not an experiment? Okay, so in an experiment, I guess a true experiment is something where you don't know what the outcome is going to be and you're changing variables and you're you're doing an investigation. And that's what science is, right? Basically, it's a series of experiments to test hypotheses and so on. So experimentation is a key part of the scientific process. A demonstration is a teacher showing students something. They're not changing variables. They're, They're not investigating anything and that's why I think it's actually really important to draw the distinction between demonstrations and experiments. Demonstrations are a unique pedagogical tool in that they're very much about forcing students to pay attention to look at something very very closely and get students to think about what's going to happen to use their understanding of scientific models to predict what's going to happen to then look at what actually happens and then if their prediction was correct fine if it wasn't correct then to try and understand why their prediction was incorrect and so forth. So it's not just about showing things. Um, There should be constant dialogue between teacher and students when doing these sorts of things. Can you just give me an overview of the demos you're going to show us today? 
I'm going to show you one of my absolutely favorite demonstrations, which is the Jelly Baby Wave Machine, which illustrates wave phenomena in a very visual manner. I'm also going to show you two demonstrations related to where we're doing this interview today, which is the Royal Institution, uh, which is the motor effect and electromagnetic induction. And, and those are things demonstrated here for and, the first time. Yeah, and finally, I'm going to show you two uh, demonstrations which allow us to talk about perhaps the single most important idea in science, which is the particle theory of matter, that everything is made up of particles which are constantly moving, and they move more when they've got more energy, and they move less when they've got less energy. So quite a wide-ranging set of physical phenomena. The Jelly Baby Wave Machine, which shows how a wave travels through a medium. What's this? Uh, this is a Jelly Baby Wave Machine. Um, I know your listeners can't see it, but essentially I've got two clamp stands at either end of a very long bench, and connected to them is a long piece of gaffer tape with kebab sticks placed at about five centimetre intervals and impelled on each kebab stick at both ends is a jelly baby so you might be thinking why is it a machine am i supposed to guess what's going to happen here uh i suspect with your physics degree you know what's going to happen but um i'm just going to lift up one jelly baby at this end and watch what happens when i let go of it okay so you lifted up the jelly baby at that end and the tape moved and it sort of moved all the way to one end of the clamp stands and then all the way back to the other so, so there was energy moving across. There was, yeah. So we've seen a ripple of jelly babies. That's what I think most people might be able to imagine. Uh, and essentially what it illustrates is a really important phenomenon in physics, which is a wave. And what you can see very clearly from this machine is that I'm doing something at this end, which is putting in some energy, making one jelly baby move. And that movement is transferred from this end to the other end, but none of the jelly babies actually change position. The jelly babies have stayed in the same place, but the energies move from one place to another. Excellent. That, that will get you a good mark in a GCSE. Okay, great. So what have we learned from this then? So what is the, what, why is knowing this important? Because waves occur in lots of places in nature, and understanding how they work allows us to understand how things like sound and light works, and understanding how sound and light works leads to things like noise-cancelling headphones, for example, uh, radio... Uh, microwaves and so forth so a lot of physics is worth knowing just for the sake of it you know we all want to understand how things in the world work but once we understand how the natural world works we can have technologies based on that knowledge and so forth but you know waves are a fundamental aspect of the natural world and that's why we teach young people about yeah them. and also it's it's the way that you can control and move energy around if you want to move energy around in any way then this is the fundamental way that energy will move around in, in many of the respects in technology and other things as well. Absolutely. Dan, you're here to show us another demo. What have you got for us? Yes, absolutely. So you've been looking at waves, and uh, this is an effect to do with waves. We're going to look at it to do with sound. But we actually have this demo out ready because we had a talk last night, an astrophysics talk, and the effect we're going to demonstrate here also applies to light when things are moving around in the universe. So it's known as the Doppler effect or Doppler shift, and that might not be familiar to everybody, but it is probably an effect that you have experienced in life and not known that it's a thing. So I have a little Bluetooth speaker on the end of a rope. It's attached to my phone, so I can play... uh, I'm going to play the noise of, like, a fire alarm bell going off. 
and I'm going to swing this rope around my head. So the speaker is swinging around my head as it plays this noise. So I'll start the noise. I'm just going to walk away. And uh, hopefully your listeners should be able to hear when I start swinging. Familiar from ambulance sirens, fire sirens, all that stuff. Yeah, if you think that classic noise of a race car going past, that there's that change in tone. It's a high-pitched noise as it comes towards you, a low tone as it moves away from you. So as this speaker was swinging around my head, as it was coming closer to our ears or towards the microphone, it was squashing the wavelengths of the sound, making it appear to be a higher tone to us. Um, And as it flew away, it was stretching those wavelengths out and making it a lower sound. And so because sound is a pressure wave in the air, right? Because it's unlike the waves we saw earlier, which are sort of moving up and down. This is, these waves move in the direction the sound is moving. That's it, absolutely. And so the little speaker in here, there's a little cone in there, it's pumping out the air, it's pushing air. And if it's moving towards you, you know, it pushes a bit of air, moves towards you, catching up with that little bit of air it pushed, and then it pushes the next one. So those peaks of those waves are the highest pressure bits of the waves are closer together than they would be when the speaker was just standing still. And that means a higher frequency. Which is and then it, the opposite happens when it's swinging away. Exactly right, yeah. It's stretching it out, sounds like a lower sound. So, OK, definitely recognise this effect. But why is knowing that useful? So, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that it doesn't just apply to sound, it also applies to light waves. So if you are talking about the universe and the scale of the universe, and if we're looking at it expanding, it's expanding at fractions of the speed of light, sometimes even faster than the speed of light in a very confusing way. Let's say we're looking at a star, and we know because of what that star is made of, it should be a certain colour and it appears to be redder in colour than we would expect it to be, and that is because it is being redshifted, and that means that the wavelength of the light that we are seeing is being stretched out as that star moves away from us. This redshift effect is seen, and that is the evidence of uh, the expansion of the universe. And can uh, redshift operate the other way too? Yes, so we can tell if, in the whole shape of the universe, as things are moving, there could be blue-shifted stars, stars that look bluer than we think because the wavelength of the light is shorter than it would be expected, and we might tell that something is moving towards us. Um, I think that's... Um, I'm not a cosmologist, but my understanding is that's rarer because the universe is expanding everywhere, so pretty much everything is moving away from us. Yeah, absolutely. So the Doppler shift relates back to the wave model that we introduced earlier on, and by understanding how waves work and knowing that light is a wave we expect light to behave in certain ways if the source is moving away from us or towards us. And that's what we observe. And once we've observed something, we can then draw other conclusions about what's going on. Yeah, but our understanding of one thing can broaden our understanding of something else if we know that there's a connection. Okay, Dan, thank you very much for all that. Been a pleasure. Thank you. The simple electric motor, which shows how electricity and magnetism can be combined to produce movement. So we're at the Royal Institution, and um, as I'm sure you know, Michael Faraday made some amazing discoveries which literally changed the world. And I'm going to show you two of those discoveries that Michael Faraday made here in this very building. And the first is this. He experimented with electromagnetism. He was very interested in electricity and magnetism. And um, people were just starting to understand that the two were related. And there's a really lovely way to show the connection between the two. So I've got a battery here and a magnet. 
Okay, so you're putting the battery on top of the magnet. Yeah, so the battery is now stuck to the magnet and all I've got here is a piece of copper wire and what's important to notice is that copper wire on its own is not magnetic. It's Doesn't a coil stick. of copper wire. It is a coil of copper wire. It's coiled in this particular way so I can do this. I'm placing the copper wire, the coil, on top of the battery so that one end of the copper wire is touching the top of the battery okay. and the so other end is happen? touching the magnet. Well, that's exactly what I would ask my students. Can I have a guess? I am sure you is can. Is it going to fall off? No. Go on. Uh, from my vague memory of physics, what's going to happen? Well, the idea is that the battery's got energy in it. There's a magnetic field underneath because of the magnet. Yep. And so if you apply energy to it... The top of the coil is going to be connected to the top of the battery and then the, the bottom of the coil is effectively connected to the okay, other so, end of the battery. Okay, so you're transferring energy and so it will turn? Why will it turn? Because there's a force that... You, you apply a force. There you go, it is turning. So you did guess correctly what was going to happen. Your explanation, I feel like... Go on, explain to me what happens. So when you connect the wire in this manner, a current is now flowing through the wire because you have a complete circuit. Mm -hmm. And whenever you have a current flowing through anything, a wire in particular, you get another magnetic field. So as well as the magnetic field of the magnet, the permanent magnet, we now have a magnetic field around the copper wire. And those two magnetic fields interact with each other. So essentially there's two forces now and that causes the wire to move. And Michael Faraday discovered that. It's called the motor effect. So this is a very, very simple motor. He discovered that in this building. And if you think about it, things like vacuum cleaners, washing machines, lawn mowers, hair dryers, we wouldn't have any of those technologies. Electric cars as well. Electric cars, yeah. So the motor made doing work easier and they're still fundamental to lots of technologies today. And in reverse. Uh, so in reverse, right. So in this situation, what we've got is we're taking electricity and making movement. We can do the opposite of that, which is... Oh, you've already got this set I up. I was, that was just a random question, but it turns out you're well prepared. The simple generator, which shows how movement of a magnet relative to a wire can generate electricity. So this is very similar apparatus. I've got a copper wire here. And I've got these, these are magnets, and this time I've got a light bulb, and there's no battery, there's no power supply. However, if I now spin these magnets near this copper wire... What happens? The light goes on. The light, light goes on, yeah. And there's no power source here, right? For no obvious well, power Well, there source. is a power source. It's your hat. Go on, you're such a <laughs> physics teacher. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So I am providing the energy, yeah. but I'm, I'm making electricity by yeah. moving these magnets near this piece of wire. And again, that was discovered here in this building. It's, it's a phenomenon called electromagnetic induction. And essentially, your listeners should remember this because if we all survive the apocalypse, this piece of knowledge could help us rebuild society, which is you can make electricity simply by moving a magnet near a wire. Now, obviously, you need to set that up in an appropriate manner. But, but this phenomenon, this is used in pretty much every electricity generation power plant in the world or all power plants generate electricity in this manner whereby essentially you create some steam or something to drive a turbine which spins some magnets or spins some wire and that combination of spinning magnetic field changing magnetic field near a wire generates electricity and that discovery as you know absolutely changed the world because it allowed us to generate electricity at will and that's why we have power stations why we're burning fossil fuels and so forth and i don't think there's any other scientific 
discovery that has changed the world to the same extent. Well, and of course, in a windmill, this direct movement of the turbine generates electricity. Yep. Again, in a, also in a, in a hydroelectric power station, same thing. Same thing, yeah. Or you're always generating electricity, whatever the source of the fuel, you're always generating it pretty much by something turning, magnets turning around each other, and you're generating electrical current, which is the opposite, as you said, of the battery moving the coil around. That's right. They're, they're kind of entirely interconnected phenomena. They're, they're kind of two sides of the same coin, if you like. And it shows the deep connection between electricity and magnetism. Alom, stick around because I know you've got a few more things to show us. We'll be back in just a moment. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Today on Babbage, I am at the Royal Institution in London, where physics teacher Alam Shaha is giving us a toolkit to help us understand the world just a little bit better. Right, Alam, what's in store for us next? The collapsing can, which shows how particles can lead to tremendous pressure. OK, so Alok, for the next thing I'm going to show you, I need to put the kettle on, I'm afraid. You must have seen this at school, Alok. I'm just pouring a tiny bit of boiling water in that. And then I'm just going to carry on heating it with this um, brulee torch. I don't know what we're <laughs> Blow torch, I think it's called. Yeah. So I've got a tiny amount of water in there. And I'm continuing to boil it in the can. So you can see steam coming out of the top of it. So that can should essentially be filled with water vapour and then I'm going to suddenly cool it all down. Before I do this at school, while I'm doing this, I'd, I'd ask my students to predict what they think is going to happen and explain why they think that's going to happen using the particle theory of matter which they should have learnt about before I do this. So, shall we have a go? Jump to have a guess. The, the can is going to implode, yes. and it's because yeah. it's because when you put the can into the cold water, yeah. the steam inside is going to condense, yeah. and there's going to be a vacuum uh, left in the can briefly, yeah. and the atmospheric pressure of the air around is going to squash the can. Okay, that's uh, that's very impressive. Shall we see if that's correct? So the can's imploded. Yeah, and if you look at the mess it's made of, the can that happened very quickly. It did happen very quickly, and you can see that you wouldn't be able to do that with your bare hands, and that gives you an idea no. of the tremendous pressure that... So that's basically the, the entire atmosphere, from here to the, the top of the atmosphere, basically all of it, pushing down 
Uh, enormous force on, on the can. Absolutely, yeah. Enormous force which you don't normally feel because that's just life for it's us. It's because of the pressure inside of yeah. what is this balance is the pressure outside. But yeah, if that's what would happen to... If you suddenly had a vacuum inside yes. you, you'd be, this is what happened to you. Yeah. So what happens when you put the can into the cold water is that the water vapour condenses very, very quickly back into a liquid, leaving empty space where it was. So there's now a pressure imbalance between the outside of the can and the inside of the can. And that pressure imbalance is such that it completely crushes the can. The bicarbon vinegar rocket, which shows how a chemical reaction can produce a gas when starting with a liquid and a solid. So I'm sure you remember this from your childhood, this exploding film canister. Uh, young people these days probably aren't so familiar with them because What's we do... What's a film canister? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you might have to explain that. OK. So if your readers are particularly young, uh, a film canister is a plastic tube with a pop-on lid that squeezes on quite tightly, which is important for it, the use that I'm going to put it to. Importantly, this is what used to have photographic film in it. Oh, uh, yes, that's from the film. Yeah. Although uh, really phys physics teachers like me, uh, this was the primary use for them. And in the good old days, you could just walk into any photographic shop and they'd give you as many as you want for free. So I've got some vinegar in this film canister. I've got a piece of tissue paper that I'm just placing on top of the canister and I'm going to scoop some bicarbonate of soda into that and just push it down so that the bicarbonate of soda is held above the vinegar. I'm popping this lid on now. So what you've got here is a canister with some vinegar at the bottom and some bicarbonate of soda trapped in some tissue paper at the top. And you can probably guess what's going to happen when you turn it upside down. OK, shall I turn this upside down? Yeah, turn it upside down and just take a step back. That one went to the roof. Yeah, it did. It didn't hit the roof, but that was pretty Mind close. Ancient plaster. <laughs> it's true. That yeah, that, that's uh, that's clearly you're better at that than I am, because well, yeah. that, that's the highest I've ever seen one of those go. Okay, so there's actually lots going on here. There's a chemical reaction. We start off with a solid in the form of bicarbonate of soda. We've got a liquid in the form of the vinegar. And when these two substances come together, they make a new substance, carbon dioxide, which is in the form of a gas. And that gas builds up until there's enough pressure in the canister that it's enough to force the lid off. And in this case, because it's upside down, you get this lovely rocket effect. I understand why I need to know about waves and motors and generators. What's the purpose of me knowing about this, apart from the fact that it's quite cool? I think there's lots you can use this for. So why does the rocket go up? What's going on? So you could talk about forces. Um, but for me, the, the most interesting thing, and, and the reason why I love this, is because it illustrates this. It's, it's a chemical reaction, and uh, I think chemical reactions are obviously something children need to know about. But the, the fact that you, you start with a solid and a liquid and you get a gas to me, demonstrate a really interesting phenomenon. And then everything you were talking about, you know, the, what you were doing, which is something... I want all my students to be able to do, which is to take their knowledge of scientific models and apply them to a situation that they're not familiar with and predict what's going to happen. And, and that's what being good at science is. It, it's understanding the models sufficiently well that you can then apply them to a situation and predict what's going to happen. And, and, and in a way, I suppose, this chemical reaction is a very simple one. People probably would have learnt in school and you can do at home. But chemical reactions are how we make things, basically, in any large industrial quantity, whether it's something simple like this or very complicated 
factories that make all sorts of chemicals or plastics or whatever else people are making. They're, they're all based around similar control of chemical reactions, right? That's right. And at school, we separate everything into physics, chemistry, and biology. But, you know, in physics, we learn about particles. In chemistry, we learn about what happens when you mix particles. And we talk about these things called chemical reactions. And to me, what's absolutely fascinating is that the, the most complicated, difficult phenomena that we're aware of is life. And life boils down to chemical reactions. Yeah, exactly like this one, yeah. <laughs> and, and you know my favourite chemical reaction? Tell me. Cakes. There you go, yeah. Baking. Absolutely. There's gases being produced, yeah. breads rising, cakes rising, all of those things. And cakes it's being very eaten, similar. yeah. It's all carbon dioxide, That's right? There you uh, go. Coming out. And cakes being eaten, it's the opposite of the chemical reaction. <laughs> Different type of chemical reaction. Right, should we clean this up? All right, Alon, so those demos showed us some very basic physics that, you know, hopefully will uh, shine an interesting light on people's worlds as they go about their day. But tell me, what is learning all this stuff all about? Why is it important to know this stuff? Where does it take us? You know, you started off saying that all children are constantly asking why, and I think we have a fundamental need to make sense of our place in the universe, and science is the human expression of that, really. And I think... Science gives us answers to those really big questions in a way that nothing else does. And that, that's not to diminish the results of art and literature and all that. But, I, you know, science is a unique way of making sense of the world. And I think it's a very satisfying way of making sense of the world. And everybody is entitled, I think, to have some appreciation of that. Because it might just be that for them, it helps them to make sense of the world in a way that makes them feel happier ultimately yeah or see the world in a slightly different yeah. light i suppose what, what do you want people to take away from this exercise i want them to stop thinking of science as something that just scientists do or something that's purely utilitarian i think an appreciation of science can enrich your life culturally same way as i said uh, music and art and literature can and last question are fish animals if you ask a child that they probably would argue with you but by the definition of animal that scientists have agreed yes fish are animals and because that, the term animal is just a description that scientists have come up with the reason i'm asking that question of course is that it's the chapter title of one of your books and uh, there's a whole discussion about whether fish are animals or not and uh, well I'll, I'll leave it up to readers to go and find out alon thank you very much for your time today thanks alon Alom's book is called Why Don't Things Fall Up? and it covers all sorts of lessons from physics that you probably wish you'd remembered from school. It's out in August. But before then, we've got some great summer reads for you in the current and upcoming editions of The Economist. If you're not yet a subscriber, you can access a month of our content for free at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. That's all from us. Thanks for listening. Babbage was produced this week by Jason Hoskin and Hannah Fisher, with mixing and sound design by Nico Roadfast. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alok Jha, and at the Royal Institution in London, this is The Economist. How can companies get value from virtual worlds and digital twins? Register now for Economist Impact's Enterprise Metaverse Summit, taking place next week, June 28th and 29th in London, and virtual, of course. You'll learn about the opportunities to power business with immersive experiences. Enjoy 20% off with the code ECOM20. So sign up now 
at enterprisemetaversesummit.economist.com. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.